You're listening to Book Stories, a podcast about bookstores, books, and book culture. I'm your host, Vic Singh. Please remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get shows. And if you like what we're doing, please spread the word. This is a conversation with Bill Nadelseeder, author of Fins, Harley Earl, The Rise of General Motors, and The Glory Days of Detroit. It's a special subject matter for me because I have family in the car business and spent some time there myself once. It was a fun conversation. I hope you enjoy. Bill, welcome and thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. So I want to start off quickly by saying that this book is emblematic of why books are so great. Uh, As I mentioned to you off mic a moment ago, I worked in the industry for a few years early in my career and never knew many of the things that you write about. So you've written about Anheuser-Busch, the music company, MCA, the comedy business, and now the rise of General Motors. How do you pick your subjects? You know, they kind of picked me in, in an odd way. I, I grew up in the car business. My dad was a, a district sales manager for Chrysler Corporation starting in 1955 when I was a little boy. And this book, the seed of this book was sown on a, I remember it, it's an indelible memory. It was a hot summer evening in St. Louis uh, around dinner time, And I was out in front of my house with a bunch of neighborhood kids and we were all gathered around an ice cream truck the delivery truck with the calliope thing, and we were trying to pick between popsicles and fudgesicles or whatever else. And my dad came driving up the street. He had just started his new job, and he pulled it in the driveway in a in a pink and white DeSoto Fire Dome hardtop with enough chrome to be seen from an airplane 35,000 feet up. And we all, it was at the moment froze, and all the kids looked at the car, and no one said anything for a second. Then everybody just broke for the car and left the ice cream, forgot the ice cream, and started climbing all over the car and asking my dad. And that just stuck with me. I've never forgotten that moment. And from then on, I was, cars were everything to me. You know, as I grew up, they were, they were everything. Early in the book, you describe GM as the most successful company in the history of business in terms of innovation, design, and execution. It sounded a lot like Apple. Do you see any similarities? Sure. I mean, um, the, it, I, get, I never thought about it being Apple, but it was it was the Apple of its day. I mean, it was ahead of everything. It, there had never been a company that successful. It, it, it broke every record. It was the first to have a billion dollars in profits. It just, you know, and it was all-encompassing, and more so than Apple in the sense that when all of a sudden World War II came, and and, and uh, GM became the, the largest provider of uh, arms material. Uh, and on the ground floor of the, the military industrial complex, you know, from then they were they were powerful in the sense in a sense that Apple has not become, you know, in, a good thing. <laughs> good know? point. Yeah. Good point. Set the stage. Uh most people today recognize, this is one of the things that I didn't know that was, I guess, my, my own naivete, but set the stage. Most people today recognize Sloan Kettering as a cancer hospital. Who were Alfred Sloan and Charles Kettering? Alfred Sloan was the, the guy who took over uh, General Motors as the chief executive. And, and I, I can't, I should know, but it's in the book, but it's like 1923 or something like that. Uh, and he started build, building the company. It was an also-ran company back then. It was like 10 12% of the market. And he bought, uh, he started buying companies, little companies that, 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 that would help build 
the conglomerate that was GM, uh, and he bought uh, a company owned by this great inventor named Kettering, who had invented all these things, including the the, uh, the uh, electronic starter for the automobile, which allowed women to become drivers because the old crank starter, not many of them were strong enough to do it. So then Kettering became the head of, of research uh, at, at GM, and the two guys grew the company sort of together. They were the two brains that that uh, that that grew a GM together, and they became very very rich from from doing that. And then that's one of the reasons why they started uh, the philanthropy. Uh, oh and, yeah, they the, well, the they started. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. Nineteen forty eight, I think, is when they started. It. Yeah. Um, so your story officially kind of begins, I guess, if it's fair to say, in Los Angeles, where the focal point of the book Harley Earl was raised. What was happening in L.A. in the eighteen nineties that got Earl on Sloan and Kettering's radar. Well, he it was it was a, a strange uh, uh, grouping of things. His father, Harley's father, was a carriage builder down in in the city of Los Angeles, and in 1903 or, or thereabouts, he moved the family, you know, out of, out of the city. He wanted to move up to the hills a little bit, and he moved them into this little dirt street village called Hollywood. At the time, they were the supposedly the first gringo family that lived there. Uh, and he did this right at a time when D.W. Griffith and Cecil B. DeMille showed up in that little area to shoot films. And the first thing that people who are making films need is they need things that move, that they can shoot, they can film. And they needed Roman chariots and they needed stagecoaches. And here was this carriage maker who had a teenage son. So they, he, they inundated him with orders for the things they needed for movies. And, and Harley sort of got to know Cecil B. DeMille, and Cecil B. DeMille sort of recognized in teenage Harley, who was hard to miss because he was six foot five and a bit of a fashion plate, kind of a showboat himself, as was DeMille. He recognized a fellow showman, and he kind of you know, took him under his wing. And, and through DeMille, Harley met a lot of people in the movie business, and he met in particular a group of young actors who had become, and who were basically just kids from the Midwest who'd come out to California and thinking, I don't know, you know, like they, we all, we've all done ever since, dreamers. Uh, and they became overnight more famous than anybody had ever been famous before because of the movies uh, and wealthier than they'd ever imagined. And they, and they could indulge any fantasies and they wanted beautiful cars. And there was Harley working on carriages and he started making really fantastic bodies for, for for their cars. They would buy a Cadillac undercarriage and all the chassis and all the stuff, engine like that. Then he would make a one-of-a-kind, you know, that, that spoke something about them, how they wanted their car to be. Tom Mix, who was this famous cowboy star, well, he wanted a, a saddle designed into the hood. Well, Harley could do that. No one had ever done that before, but why not? Fatty Arbuckle, who was the big comic star of the time, he was this rather large guy, and he he had Harley make this huge car. It was purple with white rubber tires and orange wheels, and it was so big that it was rumored to have a bathroom inside. It didn't, but it, it could have. It was that big. So, so Harley made these flamboyant, and he learned from them, because what he learned from them was is that people kind of wanted their car to say something about themselves. They wanted it to represent them. What story do I want to tell about me? And so Harley sort of came through the Mill, who saw the movie business and the car business as, as kind of the same thing, and Harley developed the view that the car business was just another form of show business, and it was all about dreams and, and people's aspirations, and no one had ever looked at it that way. Henry Ford, who had sort of kicked off the business, the, the car business in Detroit, was, was put together, built by mechanics. 
you know, and, and engineers, they, there was no art to it. They built all the engine, they got it all running and all the engineering, and then they bolted on a, a little container to put people in. That was, and they never thought about, nobody ever, ever looked about, okay, how should it look? And what should it embody? Well, that's what Harley did. And GM was getting his head handed to it because they couldn't compete with Ford because of his his manufacturing process that he did with with the moving chain assembly line. They He could make cars cheaper than they could, and they couldn't meet it, and they were trying to figure out how to do it. And all they could come up with is that, well, maybe if we made our cars more attractive and changed them more often, people would start buying cars more often. Uh, instead of once every seven years, they hey, once every five, once every three, and we could do it that way. And they heard about this young guy out in California who was doing this amazing stuff for these movie stars. And they went out and saw what he did and went, holy cow, you know, let's do that. I mean, I didn't know any this. I didn't know. I thought I knew everything about the car business because I grew up in it. And I had been, I had been, I knew everything about cars. But I didn't know that. That surprised me. when I, I already was into the book when I found out that it all started right down the street. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, they locations. had to do with movie stars and what? Yeah. You know what? It's, you know? it's amazing. And Blew the way, my mind. The way the streets were named in Hollywood, uh, it's all, it, also, there was a, it was a little farm town. <laughs> yeah, right. And now look at it. And right. there's actually a question I have about kind of how Hollywood changed forever coming up. But a couple of other things I have, historical-wise, maybe you can set the record straight for me. How responsible was President Eisenhower's Transportation Infrastructure Initiative in catapulting GM. Well, it was, yeah, very important. I mean, he, he, th- that was another thing of how all the story, I had never thought about how it all happened, how the, what made the, the car business happen the way it did. It was Why government it, intervention. Well, exactly. The big, the biggest government intervention ever. He came back from World War II. He'd seen what good roads were and we didn't have any. We had, you know, like a thousand miles of paved road in the, in the, in the entire country after World War II. And he, he came back convinced from moving armies all over Europe that it was a matter of no national security that we needed this this highway infrastructure in our country, uh, and he made it the thing in his first administration. It was part of his, his, his address to Congress, and he pushed it. And of course, once that went through, the companies knew that, okay, now we'll sell more cars because there's more places to go. There's easier access. This will increase the appetite. It increased everything. It cr- increased sale, you know, the, 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 the importance of metal and glass and all the things that went into cars and concrete. You had big glass, big Big steel, big concrete, everything that pushed this thrust to expand in America because we had all this space and no way to get to it except on foot or horseback or whatever else, you know. Right. So that's it all came together that way. And the the advent of cars changed the oil business completely. It had been, you know, a heating oil business and all of a sudden it became the gas business. And that's, you know, it's remarkable, the effect. Any thoughts on why subcontracting component parts was an early choice in the auto industry? And it's led to kind of like the business model that exists to this day. What was it about subcontracting that was, that was decided on so early in the game? Well, uh, Ford and, and, and Ransom Oles and the guys who started it, you know, they, they saw that they could get going faster if they didn't have to make everything. And if they were, and, and Ford started out as more, he had an idea for the assembly line, and, but he, he was more of, a, of an assembler. He would buy all the parts, okay, in, in the beginning, but they would job it out. Like the Dodge brothers, you know, would provide the transmissions or some of the engines or whatever else and the others, other, because there was all these industrial things going on in Detroit. And so that's what happened. So those be- it became a seedbed for all these little manufacturing companies that made parts of cars or components of cars or, you know. And then those guys, like the Dodge brothers, they were becoming millionaires making engines and they were former mechanics and things like that. And 
And then they wanted to make their own cars because if we're making all the under stuff, all we got to do is hire a company to make the bodies and we got a car. We'll call it the Dodge. And that's what, that's what happened. So that's what made Detroit. If they had done it a different way, it might have been different. Yeah. It's in, no, it was a really pivotal decision yes, early was. on that right. kind of led to the exactly. industry that we now know right. today. Component Why parts. it was concentrated in one city. Yeah. Right. Harley's early pivot was designing and building automobile bodies like you just described a moment ago. What got him to that realization? Hmm, that's a good question. I think it was working with the, uh, with the, his father kind of saw it. His father, the, 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 the even more mind-bending thing for me was when I realized that his, his ancestors, his maternal grandparents, got to Los Angeles. They left Detroit back in the 1850s and the er, 1800s and they came to Los Angeles in, via wagon train and were attacked by Indians on the way. And so that this whole story was about the whole progress of transportation, you right, know. Right. Uh so when he, his his father sort of seized on the idea of making car bodies when, when so Harley came up and they were they made car parts you know they made the first cars were very very rudimentary and you could you could make you could make special windshields for them and you could sell them to the car makers okay and then you'd sell that and then 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 his father he had Earl Earl Auto Works Earl Carriage Works became Earl Auto Works and they became they started out by selling extra things for automobiles and they were the pet boys or whatever you know and then he wanted to make cars and he had this son who turned out to be very artistic and loved cars harley loved cars you know about above anything else some something about cars spoke to him so he was he then became the guy and more so than his father talk about the industry innovation to shorten the life cycle of a car and bring consumers back into showrooms sooner you mentioned it a moment ago how big a role did harley earl play in that model he was the tool that did it. Um, in order to do that, they had to figure out a way that they could change their cars more often. To change the look of a car, of a, one model of one car, it costs a lot of money to retool your whole factory to do that. It's not like the car before it. So you have to retool it. All the parts have to be remade so it'll stamp out this particular body and not that particular body. If you're doing it for a large number of cars, say five, five divisions of cars like GM had, and maybe 20 models to division, that's a lot of cars to change. And you couldn't change it very often without shutting down the factories for a crippling number of days or months and a crippling amount of money. So how do you do it on a grand scale for mass manufacturing and do it gradually enough that it just keeps going and you keep putting out the cars at the like like an assembly line once every and and that was Harley's job. Not not just to make any particular car look better, but to figure out a system. And so what he did was he managed to invent a system that took this incredibly huge industrial enterprise and he changed the, the focus from mechanics to aesthetics. Yeah, yeah. And against a grain of, of, a, of a culture that was mechanical and was, was guys who were rough and tumble mechanics and got, you know, cut their teeth making bikes and, you know, and motorcycles and whatever else. And they looked at this guy from Hollywood who wore all these fancy clothes and his tailor was the same tailor as, as Clark Gables. And they thought, who is this big sissy? We, we just know what He's not going to tell us what to do because they drew, drew pictures on a wall. This is how we want the car to look. And that was it. Well, Harley said, no, no, that's not what we're going to do. We're going to do it a different way. You uh, asked and answered my, my question about Hollywood Harley. This is the <laughs> right. Hollywood Harley t- right. period. How did he eventually win those people over? What was the, what was the sea change? 
Well, su- success, success of the cars, the way they looked. It took a long time, they, you know, because they didn't care how they looked, but they saw that he would say, he, he basically put the car before the horse or, because he said what they'd done before is that they built all the chassis and the engine and then all the steering and all that stuff and the wheels, and then it's, okay, uh, here, draw draw this body, we would draw it and put that on there. And he went, no, how about we do it the other way? How about we draw what it's supposed to be like? We create what it's going to look like, and then you design the engineering and the mechanics to fit that. Because we think it's, it's visual and it's the look of things and the style of it that moves the sales. All cars work the same. Customer expects them by 1926, 27, 1930, you know, the car worked. They everybody knew how a car worked. There wasn't much difference between a, a, a 1928 Ford and a 1928 Dodge. They all, what they look like? And that's, what he, that's, where he, that's where the Steve Jobs came in. Steve Jobs wasn't satisfied that, it, oh, yeah, it's a computer. Well, yeah, okay, it's a computer. Yeah, we know it. We all know how a computer works. We don't really care how a computer works. It just works. Like the light switch. You turn on the light switch and it comes on. We don't give a shit about, you know. Yeah. How does it work? Well, how does it look is what Harley kept thinking. And he said he would come up with how it looked, and then he would tell them, and they'd fight him on it. And they'd, they'd try and undermine him by going to management and saying, yeah, he doesn't know what he's talking about. You have to lower this, and you got to lower that, and you can't do it. It costs too much money. And then he would prove them wrong. I mean, he'd say, well, you couldn't do that. And he showed them how to lower it. His whole idea was... When he started, cars were 74 inches high, and they had these big wheels on them and these big uh, running boards. And the reason for that was that they were made for roads that weren't paved, that got rain-drenched. So you had to have these big wheels that you stepped up into so you wouldn't sink into the mud and people wouldn't sink into their their knees in mud. That's why they looked that way. So what he saw is that in order to make these more attractive, that's not an attractive shape to a human being. They've got to be longer, lower, and wider. More, more comfort for the passenger, you know, and he developed all kinds of theories about what, what a car should be, what an American car should be. And that was different from a European car. You write that the Depression became a springboard for Harley. How? Well, they had to, all of a sudden, cars stopped selling in the kind of numbers they were. And they had to figure out a way to make money with the smaller uh, customer base because people didn't have the money. People didn't drive their cars during the Depression. They put them up on blocks because they couldn't afford the gas. So you were selling to a smaller uh, a number of people. How do you compete? They fi- it was pretty simple. They figured out, well, it's easier to change the look of a car, less expensive, than to change the engineering, okay, to change the, all the engineering. So all we have to do is work on the styling. So he became more needed. They couldn't ignore him anymore. They didn't have the, 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 the money to keep the engineering going and doing all that stuff, but they could change the, uh, the looks of it a lot easier, and then, therefore, he became more key to the operation. You also write that the Corvette was America's first real sports car. Can you talk a little about how it came to be? Well, Harley had one of his famous show cars, the uh, LeSabre, which, you know, supposedly was a a sports car. But it weighed, you know, 5,000 pounds and was huge. It was a a two-seater, but it was this giant car. He took it to the Watkins Glen Grand Prix for the weekend in Watkins Glen, New York, to see the Grand Prix and also to promote the car and be a celebrity and be seen and all that stuff as part of his job. Uh, and he noticed that, uh, you know, at the start and finish of the thing and all through all through the little town of Watkins Glen, he would see kids, you know, college students sitting around. They'd be, they'd be sitting on the, the fenders of Jaguar XK120s and MGs and these little sports cars. And he was struck by how many there were. And this was, they were all young people. They were all kids. And he, he thought, well, why, why don't we have, why does America have a car for those people? Why are we letting those guys, 
you know, sell to our kids. And so he went right back to GM and walked into his guys and said, let's come up with a, a sports car for Americans. And, and he wanted it to be, his, his idea was to, make, to pattern it off the MG, make it very simple, unadorned, so the kids could afford it, uh, not fancy. And, and so what they did, they started working on the Corvette. And he had the kind of power that that was sort of a change, too. By that time, it's 1952, mm-hmm. uh, he had the kind of power to say that. And he could actually cause a division. He had to go find a division that would do that. Okay, he couldn't do it because he didn't have any manufacturing capability. Uh, he had to convince someone to do it. And the, the people at Chevrolet said, yeah, we, we'll, we'll do that. So they designed something that was sort of stripped down. I mean, it didn't even have roll-up didn't have roll-up windows. It had those kind of windows that the old MG had there, canvas and, and plastic, and you reach inside. It didn't have door handles. You had to reach inside and pull a cord to open the doors. That's what the kids were driving. So they came up with a really cool-looking car that they did it with off-the-shelf parts. They didn't do anything. They just put it together really quickly, and they made 200 of them. And they, they sold most of those to GM employees the first year. They didn't catch on right away because when they were done making it, they had to charge like $3,000 for it, and kids didn't have $3,000, and the people who had $3,000 to spend would be buying a second car. Right. They wanted door handles. They didn't want those leaky windows. They, they didn't want, want to snap their Exactly. They didn't want it. So it, 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 was, it almost failed. Interesting. You also write that Cadillac almost failed in 1948. What happened with Cadillac? Well, Cadillac uh, was a victim, of course, the, uh, the Depression. Okay, so fewer and fewer people were buying Cadillacs, and it was it, Cadillac was was the cornerstone, one of the cornerstones. The, the, Buick, I think, was the first company that that became part of GM, and then they bought Cadillac. So Cadillac was the luxury car, premier luxury car in America, uh, and it was it was a it was the most profitable division because the car was the most expensive, and it was it was you know everything kind of revolved around Cadillac. That was GM's big cachet, uh, but. Sales had fallen off 80%. So they had a meeting, you know, up in the big boardroom, uh, and they were meeting to kill it. They were, we can't, we're not going to, we're not going to make it anymore. And the guy who was the head of Cadillac servicing, service division, service company, he was a, a German uh, immigrant with a heavy accent, and probably none of the big guys who were in this meeting had ever seen him before, ever heard of him before. As they were having this meeting, he burst into the meeting. He just he just crashed the meeting with all these, with Sloan and Kettering and all the board of directors guys who were all millionaires. And this guy all of a sudden is in this meeting and he has a thick German accent and he's got burn holes in his pocket, in his coat because he smokes a pipe. And he begs them not to do this. And he explains to them that he knows something about Cadillac they might not know. And what he had done was he had, Cadillac, had a had a had a rule back then. This shocked me too because I didn't know this. They didn't sell it to black people. They they didn't because they thought that that would cheapen the brand. That would mean it wasn't classy. That was poor people. We don't want poor people buying this, you know. So they had a rule. You, they were forbidden. But the, the this guy, his name was Nicholas Dreistat. He would go to the their their service centers and he would meet black owners of new Cadillacs. And well, how is that? We're not supposed to sell them. So he would talk to them and say, and you know, they'd be very proud of their cars and they seem well to do and they had this nice car. And they explained to him, yeah, well, that's the rule. The way we get around it though is we pay a white person 400 bucks to front the sale for us. And he was like, wow. So he, what he realized that he found out from talking to them that there was a black bourgeoisie, people who made a good amount of money. Uh, they were merchants. They were doctors. They were they they had, they had businesses. They were lawyers, and they practiced in their own world, separate from the white world. But they made a really good income, and there was a number of them. The, but the difference with them is they couldn't spend their money 
on things that white people spent them on. They, they couldn't join a country club. They couldn't buy a house in a nice area. They were stuck in areas where the most expensive house cost $5,000 or whatever else. But they could buy a luxury car, except they couldn't buy a Cadillac. So he basically appealed to these guys by saying, you know, he didn't tell them, well, it's morally wrong what you're doing. He was an idiot. He appealed to them by saying, well, why would you let somebody make money on our cars? Why don't we market to them, market to the, the black people who have money? And they were like, well, we don't have a better idea. We'll give you 18 months to give it a try and we'll, we'll market to them. So they did that. And over the next 18 months, he turned the whole division around and he was made the, the general manager of the Cadillac division, which was the biggest promotion he could ever imagine in his life. Sure. And uh, that's, that's he, he became known as the man who saved Cadillac. Great story. What is Earl's legacy? How much of him is still a part of GM today? Boy, that's hard. I don't know. You know, I don't really know. I mean, he's, they're very proud of him. Uh, there was a time when they weren't because when, when the Finn thing was over, they were, there was a period where they were kind of embarrassed about it. Finn's took such a beating from the critics and all that stuff that I think they were sort of embarrassed by Harley. But I think they're, they, historically now they see him as this great figure, so they're very proud. It's, it's hard to say because when you look at their cars, I mean, their styling department is probably second to none still. They're very proud of that styling department. I mean, there's a history there that nobody else has. I mean, you know, he did invent the uh, profession. You know, back then there was nobody in the 50s and into the 60s and 70s. There was nobody who headed any styling department anywhere who wasn't trained by Harley Earl and probably fired a couple times, you know. And uh, so it's kind of hard to say. If you look at cars today, you, Harley must be rolling over his grave because they basically come in four colors, four non-colors, gray, silver, you know, white and black. And they all kind of look the same. I don't know anyone who thinks they don't. I mean, I'm not advocating that they all look like uh, 57 Chryslers with big fins, but they do look all alike. Yeah, it's mostly uh, the insides that get modified now right. and the electronics and the components. that. But people... those are all the same color, too. Right, uh, yeah, right, they're black right. or gray or, or sort of tan, which I think is going out, too. Yeah. <laughs> you know? No, it's very interesting. The fronts of cars and backs of cars are seemingly just morphing into one consistent look across the spectrum from affordable all the way up to luxury. Right, and, and, and Teslas are gorgeous. That look like Bentleys now. Yeah, but yeah, Teslas are gorgeous. But yeah. you know what? They don't look all that much different. They're cooler looking. They have a cooler factor to them. Uh, the interior is spectacular, but not idiosyncratic in any way. It's not, there's nothing individualized about it. It's all kind of, it looks like a, a big iPad. And it's what it is. Yeah, well, That's what, kind of what well the car said. is, really. <laughs> um, a, a lightning round. So I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions that are that, that are going to be pretty quick, and then okay. we're going to wrap up. What's your favorite GM car? 1962 Corvette. Uh, what's your favorite bookstore? Uh, boy, I, I guess uh, Book Soup. What are you reading right now? I'm not. <laughs> I'm writing right now. What are you I'm, writing I'm right gonna now? Buy, I'm going to get Michelle Obama's book. Okay. I'm yeah. not a right reader of, of, of political autobiographies, but I'm going to buy and read hers. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a no-brainer. What's your next project? Well, I can't tell you. Okay. But it comes out of this book. Okay. And you'll know it. Okay. Okay, because I'll tell you, but I won't tell you what it is. Okay. There's an there's a anecdote in the book that comes close to what we were just talking about where you go, what? How could that have happened? Okay. How could that have happened? And it was too good a thing that I stumbled on. It took my breath away. It was a holy shit thing. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. And I thought, well, okay, I can't put that in the book. I'll, I'll mention that thing, but it's not really tied to Harley. And if I went any further into it, it would draw away from the story of Harley and be its own thing. So I was going to research that. And, and, I, and the more research I've done, it's a whole thing to itself. It's a whole piece of American history that's not connected to the car business, but 
that particular thing is connected. So there's okay. the mystery. Okay. Tune in. Tune in. <laughs> How can people find out more about your work? Uh, uh, BillNadelCedar.com. That's my it's a website. You know, I've got three or four books out there uh, over the years. Fins, I'm dying up here. That's people probably know it, know me from that one. Um, that was the basis of the TV series, which did two seasons before it before it ceased to exist. <laughs> right. The book is Fins, Harley Earl, and the Rise of General Motors and the Glory Days of Detroit. Bill, thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Book Stories. Please remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to shows. Book Stories is an alternate Thursdays production. Special thanks to Savannah Wright for production assistance. I'm Vic Singh. Thanks for listening.